A reading from the book of Daniel, chapter 9. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. The word of the Lord. Almighty Father, we ask that you will make yourself very clear to us. It's easy for us, Father, to misunderstand you or to see you in a way that you have not revealed or to imagine things about you that you have never said. And so, Father, I pray that as we uh, consider your word, as we consider this reading, will you make yourself clear to us? And will you correct uh, misunderstandings we have? And will you grant us to see you clearly? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. And uh, it's helpful if you uh, turn back to those two readings or uh, open up uh, the Bible to Daniel chapter 9. We're continuing our series in the Old Testament book of Daniel, and we're going to be pretty much only looking at that first reading. Um, and um, I want to set up this reading by asking a question that has the potential of really, um, if we understand it correctly, if we answer it correctly, uh, cutting to the, just the heart of Christianity. If you were in the new members course or the confirmation course, this will be familiar to you. And it's the question, uh, how does God restore his wayward people? Um, if you've been around uh, the church for very long, if you have a background in Christianity, you will know uh, that the church does not always live up to the vision of Jesus. Um, if you're new to the church, um, my guess is that that's not very surprising to you, but I don't want to bait and switch. <laughs> you know, I mean, the church doesn't always live up to the vision of Jesus. And therefore, the longer you hang out in church land, um, the more the question becomes very, very urgent, how does God restore his people when his people uh, uh, leave the path? 
go on a detour. Do not live up to the, to the vision of Jesus. But I could ask another question that's just a slightly less churchy, and it's this. Um, how can we experience uh, true and positive and lasting change in our lives? Um, uh, when I was a kid, one of my uh, pastors used to say, I want to grow up before I grow old. And I hope that that's true of all of us, right? I mean, you are all amazing, amazing people. Um, but you don't want to stay just the way you are for your whole life, do you? Don't you want the story of your life to be a story of transformation, of, of change in a good way? And, and if that's the case, I want that to be the case in my life. If that's the case, then we need to ask the question, um, how is it uh, that we can experience true and positive and lasting change? Now, why am I asking these questions? Well, I'm asking these questions because that first reading we just had, that big long one, is a long prayer of confession. Uh, what's confession? Confession is when uh, we come before God and we front foot not our best, but our worst. Confession is when we come before God and we say, God, here I am. Not as I wish I was, but as I really am. Here's my failure. Here's my worst. Here's my need. I can't fix myself, and I need your mercy. And this reading teaches us how to do that, and it's crucial because confession is always a critical turning point in the process of transformation that God works in our lives and in the process of renewing his church. And so what I want us to do is look at this reading and try to figure out how this confession is supposed to work in my life. And here's what I want to show you. Here's, here's, the, here's the thesis. Real confession, healthy confession, confession that really leads to true transformation is always animated by the beauty of God. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, go to the vision and remember the scene. So Daniel is the speaker here. And remember, we've been talking about this for a while. Daniel is a Jewish man living in exile. Um, he was, as a young man, he was captured by the Babylonians. We think he lived in Jerusalem. And he spent a lot of his life working for the Babylonian Empire, but now there's been a regime change and he's working for the Persian Empire. And one day, uh, Daniel is reading the uh, Old Testament book of Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah lived just a little bit before Daniel lived, and famously, Jeremiah, who lived in Jerusalem, Jeremiah anticipated the fall of Jerusalem and the exile into Babylon that Daniel was experiencing. So it's not surprising that Daniel reads Jeremiah and he's fully engaged. And then Daniel reads something in Jeremiah that just stops him in his tracks. And we'll come back to that in just a minute. But Jeremiah just slams into Daniel. And Daniel stops reading, and he falls on his knees in prayer. And that's the prayer that we have. But this is where things get just a little bit strange. 
because Daniel prays what seems to me a very odd prayer. It's a prayer of confession. And I wonder if the prayer seems odd to you. Now, real quick, if the prayer does not seem that odd to you, in fact, if you noticed some phrases that sound a little bit familiar, that might be because you've been hanging around Emmanuel just a little bit, and you can hear echoes of our own uh, liturgy and prayers in Daniel's prayers, or actually it works the other way around. Our prayers are echoes of Daniel's prayers. And part of the reason for that is that 500 years ago, the compilers of our tradition and our prayer life, our liturgy, they learned to confess their sins by reading Daniel's prayer. And so if it's a little bit familiar, that might be why, but don't be fooled by that. This prayer is a very strange prayer. Why is it strange? Well, here's one reason. Uh, this prayer confesses vigorously the failings of the people of Israel. However, in this particular moment, it might be easy to imagine that Israel is actually not really the bad guy in this moment. Here's what I mean. If you read the uh, entirety of the Hebrew Scriptures, um, you will realize that Israel, the people of God in the Hebrew Scriptures of the Old Testament, they get it wrong an awful lot. They've got a lot to confess. However, out of the whole history of Israel, the book of Daniel, this particular moment, is a moment where the Israelites are actually presented pretty well. Like if you read the rest, if you read the rest of Daniel, you'll find that the Israelites who show up are actually doing things plausibly well for a change. So that if there was ever a moment in the history of Israel where you might be able to look at him and say, hey, Israel, actually, you're doing better than average, it's this moment. And on the other hand, you might imagine, hey, listen, if there are bad guys that need to confess some sins, uh, you don't have to look very far to imagine who those people might be. Who might those people be? Well, the Babylonian Empire, for instance or maybe the Persian Empire. And I could have imagined Daniel praying a prayer that went something like this, well, God, we might not be perfect, that's fair, but I'm sure glad we're better than those nasty, oppressive, violent, pagan Babylonians that oppress us. But Daniel doesn't do that. He doesn't point away to the sins of others. He points to the sins of his own people. And he is shockingly comprehensive. He starts out by saying, the sins of the present are echoes of the sins of the past. You can see that in verse 6. He points out, he says, just like uh, the kings and the princes and the fathers of the nation before us, we, like them, have failed to listen to the prophets. The uh, kings and the princes and the fathers of the nation before Daniel uh, had betrayed their loyalty to God by refusing to listen to the prophets. But Daniel says that what they did, we're doing now. 
The sins of the past are still problems of the present. But then he zeroes in on Israel of the present day. And when he confesses the sins of the present day, one of the interesting things is that he seems to set aside all uh, tribalism. So he doesn't say, hey, there's a group of Israelites that are doing eh, plausibly well, but then there's these other guys, and they're the really bad ones, and we need to confess their sins. He doesn't do that. He puts everyone in Israel in a single uh, unity, a corporate solidarity. Look at verse 7. He confesses the sins of the Judeans and of the Israelites. He says, those who stayed in Jerusalem and those who went into exile, they are all of them guilty, according to Daniel, in a single unity. So just think about how comprehensive this is. Daniel is confessing uh, historic sins that are still present in Israel at that time. And then he's confessing uh, sins, and he's saying it's a corporate dynamic. All of us are in this together. And then he also confesses his personal sin. If you look briefly over at the second reading, verse 20, he talks about confessing my sin and the sin of my people. He's clear that he's personally implicated in the sins of his people. And even that is a little surprising. I mean, nobody, everybody knows that nobody is perfect. But Daniel is one of the most moral men in the history of Israel. If you read through the Bible again, you'll find that the Bible, when it holds, if it holds up a hero, it almost always shows us their failings. It often front foots their failings. Daniel is a little bit different. You never find Daniel, any uh, clear example of Daniel, compromising his character. And yet, despite that, despite that outwardly he, he was a very integrous man, when he read the prophet Jeremiah, it cut to the heart. And he could see sins echoing down the past, and he could see the sins corporately dispersed, but he could also somehow, and we don't know the specifics, he could see his own personal participation in it. And one of my questions is, how is it that Daniel, perhaps to this point, the greatest Israelite in their history, except for perhaps Moses, how did he become so humble? What drew him to this confession? And the answer must be that he was drawn out by the moral beauty of God. What do I mean? I mean this, Daniel's whole prayer, this whole prayer is animated by God's moral character. And that's what I mean by God's beauty. Look at how God, uh, Daniel describes God. Look at verse 4. O Lord, the great and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Stop there. And look at verse 7. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. Daniel is fixated on God's moral character and his moral beauty. And it's as Daniel looks at God's moral beauty, as his eyes are fixed there, that he begins to see his own sin and the sin of his people in great clarity. But now let's just go a little bit deeper. 
look at what Daniel says about God. Daniel says in various points that God is righteous, full of steadfast love, and he keeps covenant. And we need to grasp something of what all this means. Think about covenant, first of all. What's a covenant? Well, do you remember uh, in the larger story of uh, Israel when God and Israel entered into a relationship with each other? Do you remember that? Just to remind you, uh, Israel had been enslaved in Egypt for an awful long time, and God liberated Israel through uh, Moses. And then God brought Israel out into the desert, and there at the foot of Mount Sinai, they entered into a relationship together. They entered into a covenant together. Uh, God promised to care for Israel and love them forever, and Israel promised to love God back and express that love by obeying God's commands, and they were bound together. It was a covenant. A, a covenant is a little bit like a contract and a little bit like a friendship, but it's more relational than a contract, and it's more binding than a friendship. God and Israel entered into a loving and a mutual and a permanent relationship at that moment. However, then, and it only took days, Israel cheated on God. By the way, that's what sin is. Sin is when we cheat on God in one way or the other. And Israel cheated on God many, many ways, lots of different times. And there was always a temptation to justify themselves just a little bit. They wanted, they looked at the nations around them, and they wanted to be just a little bit like those other nations around them. And, 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 and there's always a temptation in the human heart to try to grade ourselves on a curve. Do you know what I mean by that? Um, we we kind of say, hey, listen, we're just doing, well, what is really normal for everybody else. Um, in fact, we're not worse than everybody else. And, and I can always point to somebody that's way worse than I am. Sin in the heart always wants to be graded on a curve. And if I can find somebody else that will normalize my behavior or is a little bit worse than me in one way or the other, I can reassure myself that what I'm doing isn't really all that much cheating on God anyway. The trouble is it, it doesn't end up working with God because Daniel says God is righteous. And that means that God never cheats, especially on covenants. And part of God not cheating on the covenant with Israel is that God promises, and Jeremiah is very clear about this, that God promises that there will be a reckoning for Israel and the cheating that they have pursued. And that's part of what Daniel is reading about in Jeremiah. In the book of Jeremiah, God decides and proclaims that a day of reckoning has come. God decides that Israel's cheating is going to need to stop. And in perfect compliance with the terms of the covenant, God facilitates Israel's defeat by the Babylonians and then their exile into Babylon. And Daniel, in our reading, looks at God and says, you were right to do it. See, the God of the Bible is righteous. He takes sin seriously and how sin uh, 
uh, rolls down the ages in constantly repeating patterns. And he takes corporate sin seriously amongst his people. And he takes personal and individual sin seriously. And actually, this is part of his moral beauty. It's part of God's moral beauty that ensures that justice has a real meaning. And so, Emmanuel, now I want to pause. I know this is all heavy, isn't it? And ask you, can you see the moral beauty of God's righteousness? And here's one way to tell. Ask yourself, ask myself, how defensive am I of my moral innocence? We should be careful here. Um, no one is guilty of every sin. And it's not right to be condemned of a sin that I have not committed. On the other hand, the more defensive I am and sensitive about my own innocence, the more likely I am that I may still be grading myself on a curve. Um, I, I may be trying to justify myself by pointing away from myself and finding someone else that I consider just a little worse than me. And so when somebody points out sin in me, I go, whoa, no, that, and I deflect. I'm defensive. And the problem is that that defensive posture doesn't stand before the scrutiny of a righteous God. It kind of makes sense in our world where everybody is involved in sin to a greater or lesser extent, but not when we're standing before God. And this, I think, explains part of Daniel's humility. He saw not his relative righteousness, but he saw the moral beauty of God's perfect righteousness. And standing before the moral beauty of God's perfect righteousness, his defensiveness was dismantled. Now, that doesn't mean that Daniel was guilty of every sin Israel committed, but as he looked at God's beauty, he discovered his own participation, even in small ways, in the sin of his nation, and he could see the sin dispersed through his nation in deep and maybe subtle ways, and he could see how in subtle ways it was an echo of Israel's historic sin, and that left him standing before God with no defense but the mercy of God. Now, let me pause there and just say this, Emmanuel, if you want to experience real and lasting and positive change, and if you want to be part of the restoration of God's wayward people, then you must be able to be willing to be humbled before God at that level. And we need to be a culture that values that full, profound humility. Okay, but go back to Daniel. Because here's the, here's the other odd thing I find about this. If I were Daniel and I was standing before God and seeing his perfect righteousness and seeing my sin and the sin of my people, I would have cowered. I would have shrunk back. I would have been timid. But not Daniel. Do you see that? He's not timid at all. He's bold. I mean, he is bold as brass before God. Now, why? Why is he so bold? 
where does Daniel's boldness come from? I can see where the humility came from, but where did the boldness come from? And the answer is the boldness comes from the same source as the humility. He's humbled before the beauty of God, and he's bold because of the beauty of God. What do I mean? Well, God's beauty includes his righteousness, but his beauty also includes his steadfast love. See that in verse 4? And remember how Jeremiah said that one day there would be a reckoning for Israel's sin. Well, Jeremiah also said that God would pursue Israel with his mercy. Verse 2, that there would be an end to the desolations. And that promise of mercy is an expression of God's steadfast love. What is God's steadfast love? Well, many ways to think of it. Here's one. God's steadfast love is his absolute commitment to keep his promises and to save his people despite their cheating on him. God's steadfast love means that God refuses to ratify Israel's rejection of him, but rather he pursues them. Steadfast love means that God pursues Israel even as they're running away from them, from him. And his steadfast love means that God pursues his people, especially as they're trying to run away. That's why he sent the prophets. And when God's steadfast love embraces an undeserving and sinful people, that's what we call mercy. And it leads to boldness. Look at verse 18. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness. Does this sound familiar, by the way? But because of your great mercy, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, pay attention and act. Do not delay for your own sake, O my God. He's drawn towards God because of his steadfast love, and he's bold because of it. I wonder, Emmanuel, uh, how can you see the beauty of God's steadfast love? How do you tell? Well, here's one way. Ask yourself this question, how bold am I to seek God's mercy? When I uh, see my own failure, and when I stand before God's righteousness, and when I realize that I cannot stand upon my innocence, do I shy away from God? Or, or, or maybe do I imagine I need to up my game before I come before God and ask for mercy? If that's how my heart works, then it means that my shame is eclipsing God's beauty in my heart. Or maybe my heart works a little differently. Maybe when I think about God's righteousness, there's just a little bit of resentment. I'd never admit it, but there's just a little bit of resentment. Maybe when I think about God's righteousness, deep down I start to say, you know, God's just a touch unreasonable. He's just, his demands are unreasonable. No wonder no one can do it. And I can't live up to it. Maybe my heart says, I can't live up to it. And deep down, I'm not sure, but it seems like God is a bit of a tyrant. He says he's my father, but maybe I'm just better on my own. If that's how my heart works, then it means my understanding of God's beauty is disfigured. And I'm imagining that he's not my father, but that he's cruel. 
And so maybe it's my shame that makes me run from God. Maybe secretly I sort of think God's cruel. Or maybe both are true at the exact same time. But if any of that matches your soul, and it does mine sometimes, then, then this is what we need, Emmanuel. We need a new dawning of God's steadfast love upon our souls. You see, Daniel looked at the pages of Jeremiah and he saw a righteous God and a God of great steadfast love. A God whose steadfast love refused to allow his people's sin to separate them from him forever. He saw a God who was chasing them with kindness, a kindness that they did not deserve. And when Daniel saw that, the only appropriate response from him was, Yes, O God, for your mercy's sake, please capture us in the happy snare of your steadfast love. And so, Emmanuel, I want to know, can you see the beauty of God's steadfast love? And can you see the beauty of his righteousness? Is his righteousness leading you to humility? And is his steadfast love drawing you out from yourself to his mercy? Some of us here are captivated by God's beauty, or at least sometimes we are, right? And when you do, you will find yourself confessing sin, and it will actually strangely become a, a, a sweet renewal of your relationship with your Father. You will bring your sin, and you'll say, oh, I'm heartbroken about my sin, but I'm looking into the eyes of a loving Father, and I want to be restored to you, Father. But then there's times when we don't see God's beauty very clearly. And some of us are not compelled, or sometimes we are not compelled by God's righteousness or his steadfast love. And if that's you, I want, I want to point something out, okay, as we close. Most of the Israelites in Daniel's day struggled to see the beauty of God. That's why they ran from him. And it's also why Daniel's role was so crucial. Because Daniel was a great man, not a perfect man, but he was a prophet, and in some ways, in this moment, a mediator. He could stand between God and Israel. God was seeking Israel, but Israel could not always see God's beauty, and so they kept running from them. And so Daniel stood between them a bit like a mediator. With one hand, he grasped the beauty of God, and with another hand, he grasped his people in the midst of their sin, and in this prayer, he brought them together. And if you're here today, and you cannot see God's beauty, then you need someone who will stand between you and God, and grasp God, and grasp you, and bring them together, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God in person, completely God, and completely human, and with one hand, he grasps God in and his perfect beauty. And in the other hand, he grasps sinners in the midst of our running away from him. And he brings us together at the cross of Christ. And when his hands were outstretched upon the cross, that's what he was doing. And in his death, he displayed God's perfect righteousness against sin. And in his resurrection, he offers reconciliation, displaying God's perfect steadfast love and right now he is pursuing you and he loves you and he is calling you by name and he is saying turn to me and receive my mercy it was purchased with my blood and i love you 
And so when we ask, how does real transformation work? And how is it that God can restore his wayward people? It must begin by seeing the beauty of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Your soul, Emmanuel, must see his beauty. That is what will drive your transformation. And it's not the other way around. And that means that real confession is the outward expression of an inward discovery of Christ's beauty. So look at Jesus and see God's beauty. And you'll see the beauty that Daniel saw, but you'll see it so much more clearly. And that will be the beginning of our eternal transformation. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.